Well, we're entering a new series in, um, on worship uh, just over the next few weeks before the church weekend away. So I'd love you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and uh, there are hopefully Bibles around. There are quite a few already on the chairs, but uh, if you want to grab one, uh, you're very welcome to do that, or you can check through on your device. And um, we're going to be reading a little passage here, so don't hesitate to grab a Bible and um, follow through with me. This is a relatively complicated text, so it's definitely worth having a look at the, uh, the script itself. And reading from um, 2 Samuel 6, verses from verse 12. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all of the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how is the king of Israel, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of the servants as any vulgar fellow would? David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But these slave girls you spoke of I'll be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Well, here we are. Um, one of the founding psychological principles of life is called the James Lang theory. And James Lang, uh, the James Lang theory is this idea that um, actions precipitate emotions. It proposes that an event and a corresponding physical response precedes how we feel about that. So if we encountered a kind of wild animal and we had a physical response, which would be a lot of adrenaline and desire to run away, we would respond to that initially physically and then we would begin to feel fear cognitively. So fear, if you like, is the tailwind of a physiological experience. If we you know, encounter someone we find very attractive, we might sort of encounter them and you know, see them, maybe even chat to them, and then you might suddenly sort of you know, flush with emotion, you might feel attraction, you might feel love. So love follows, if you like, encounter, or attraction follows encounter. You get the idea. It's a pretty straightforward principle, but it's a bit more complicated than it sounds. 
because emotions and events are a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. What came first, uh, the event the, or the emotion? But I think our society has increasingly elevated emotions as the primary cause of our actions. So whilst the James Lang theory founding principle of psychology over the, the last sort of 50 years has been nuanced away slightly. So actually, what's really driving you is the emotion, not the action. You're not, you're not a reactive being. We're not all just reactive. You know, we're proactive. We, we lead with our feelings. We don't lead from events. We're not just responsory. We're about being on the front foot. How many of you have been asked, how do you feel about 2023? Or a question of that, guys, over the last couple of weeks. How are you feeling about the year ahead? Yeah, most people. Two-thirds or so of the room. How do you feel about 2023? Hands up who's been asked, what actions are you going to take in 2023? A couple of you. It's quite interesting. And that, th those action questions might relate to work. But when you're in a social setting, people often say, you know, how do you feel about the year ahead? I saw uh, one of the red tops, not that I'd buy it, it was just in the, you know, getting, doing my free newspaper shopping in Waitrose where you just read all of the covers whilst you're getting your lunch and then walk away without buying any of them. But one of them just had a picture of a toilet roll and it said, welcome to 2023. I was thinking, you know, what are you saying here? You're telling me that the year ahead is basically going to be really crap. And now I'm, I'm responding to that, and I'm, I'm leading with my emotions into the year ahead. Oh, yeah, this year's going to be terrible. We, we, we found our emotions have become pliable when we lead with our emotions. We sort of, well, how do I feel about this? And how I feel about it is going to dictate what I do about it. How do you feel about it? Now, we all think, well, many of us will think, I think, in the 21st century, that it's entirely normative to lead with your feelings. Because our feelings have been elevated to ratify or justify everything we do. Well, if you don't feel good about it, just don't do it. That's quite a kind of common phrase. You know, how do you, how do you really feel about that? Well, I'm not sure. Well, if you're not sure, I just wouldn't get involved. That's kind of, is that good friend advice? Friend advice is often rooted in the, oh, but how do you really feel about it? And really feel gives you this idea that feelings are really, really objectively testable. Like, if you feel something, it's like empirically valuable. Like, I feel angry, therefore I am legitimately angry for the rest of the year. It's like it's some sort of concrete idea that somehow measures and weighs everything that I'm going to go and do because I'm angry. But actually, you might feel angry for a moment, but then you might feel totally fine a moment later. Does that, does that legitimize or does that delegitimize the anger? Like when, we often feel very self-righteous in arguing. Anyone had a really good Christmas argument? I mean, when I say good, I mean a big one. Oh, no one's going to put up their hand up for that one. I bet you did. You know, it's amazing when there's that kind of row with your brother or sister who are now like 35 and you've scooted off to the loo, which is what you did when you were 15, to try and avoid the washing up. And then you've come back in and there's that, you always do that. No, I don't. Yes, you do. You always go off when we're going to do the washing up. You had that big row. You felt the anger rising, the self-justification. You know, it feels really true and really real. And then you suddenly step back in the afternoon and go, oh, wow, how did I do that? It's actually, I was leading with my feelings. Now, 
I love, I'm a mental health specialist. Like, I love feelings. I'm all about, I think feelings are brilliant. But I always describe feelings as taking the temperature of the pool that you're swimming in. This is me taking the temperature of my experience. They tell me something about what I've experienced because I believe in James Lang theory, surprisingly. I believe that emotions take the temperature of our experiences by and large. And sometimes disordered emotions can pop up when actually they aren't responsory. And that's sometimes the nature of what it feels like to have a mental health problem, when our emotions don't connect very clearly to our experiences. That's okay. But what I want to sort of challenge here is the idea that everything that you do in the year ahead is emotions-driven. Because, you know, I heard this phrase coined this last week, permacrisis. Has anyone, has anyone else heard? Did anyone else hear that? Yeah, a few people. So this is, I heard this, and it's sort of, I was sort of arrested when I heard it. I listened to quite a few podcasts, particularly poli politic podcasts. I don't know why, I must be getting old. But I, I was... I was, I was I was driving up to see my dad, and I was listening to, like, I love the rest is politics. I was listening to the sort of back-to-back, -back, the rest is politics. And I don't know, it was Alistair Campbell, I think, came out of this, well, we're in a perma-crisis. And I was like going, wow, that really brilliantly describes the way in which the news media have been filling us with ideas of terror around what's going to happen throughout the entire year. Because perma-crises sell. Like, it's brilliant. You know, if you, can, if you can really, really stir up someone's anxiety with the next big headline, they're going to buy the newspaper to find out what terrible thing is going to happen next. And then they're going to want to read that news to defend themselves. And they're going to get another newspaper with another perma-crisis title in it to kind of get you hooked into that one. If we're really in a perma-crisis, and the word crisis, I think, is used very, very loosely these days, by the way. You know, I mean, everything is apparently a crisis. Um, which is remarkable. My brother-in-law lives in Zimbabwe, and um, it's just really humbling to talk to him about what life is like at Christmas. You know, yeah, generators went off for like two days, no power, you know, we just use candles, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 my mate had to go to hospital the other day, we gaffer taped him to a door and drove for four hours so he could get there safely. You know, that's the kind of stuff I'm hearing. I'm going, we're in a perma crisis apparently here in the UK. I just think sometimes we've lost our perspective on what a crisis actually looks like. Um, but if we're going to be led in our actions entirely by our feelings, I wonder if we're going to get it right this year. If we're going to allow us to step into the year driven entirely by our emotions, I wonder whether the decisions we're going to make are going to be really good, whether our actions are actually going to be really on the front foot. It would be really easy to step into this new year sort of exhausted, especially worship-wise. Because when it comes to worship, most people go, oh, I'm feeling a bit flat at the moment. But, you know, when I feel like the drawer of the Lord, then I'm going to be, then I'll start worshipping. When I really feel a stirring in my heart, then I'm going to be like, yes, then I'll be worshipping. But right now, I'm just sort of standing at the back because I don't want to be inauthentic, so I'm just going to wait until I really feel it in here before I, you know, step into it. Because that would be really hypocritical if I started worshipping before I really felt, you know, like I should be worshipping. Now, many of us in this room will connect to that narrative. Like, I, I need to feel like it's time to worship before I really worship. And, you know, it's, it's brilliant being in a church with amazing lights and amazing sound and an amazing band, because these things all help us to feel a bit more like worshipping. But, you know, if we just raise the lights... It just was really stark. doesn't mean it's not still time to worship. 
You know, because ultimately, how I feel about worship really doesn't matter. What matters is that I decide to worship. David, in this passage in, in 2 Samuel verse 6, it, you know, you're thinking, okay, this is a guy who's exuberantly worshiping. He must have had a really great spiritual retreat. Maybe he went to Ashburnham, or maybe he went to, to the one in Wales, I can never pronounce. And then, or, you know, maybe he went to the Oast Houses, and, and he was like there with someone really special, like David Pitches or Simon Ponsonby speaking out a weekend away. And he's like sitting, he was resting in the Lord for some time, and his, his physical strength was restored to him by great food, and his spiritual strength was restored to him by great Bible teaching, and he just was in good relationship with everyone. And then he came back, and he began to worship. But look, David has had a pretty tough time. In 1020 BC, he defeats Goliath. He's probably 15. 1007, he flees from Saul, uh, who and, like, an evil spirit causes Saul, the king, to pursue him. It's pretty bad news. Then in 1006 BC, he flees to Achish and the king of the Philistines, the city of Gath. Um, he feigns madness to protect himself and his men, and he's expelled. Pretty tough experience. You know, then he liberates Kalila from the Philistines, massive battle. Saul hears about it, gathers a force, and then tries to kick a man when he's down. Then Saul pursues him again to Engedi. Then David encounters Saul and 3,000 men in his camp. Then David flees to Gath a second time with 600 men and their families. You know, it just goes on and on. You know, David uh, is helped to, uh, with his allies to assume control of Judah, another massive battle. Conquers Jerusalem, another massive battle. It goes on and on and on. Betrayal, challenge, war, bloodshed, suffering, personal disaster, personal moral disaster, public criticism of vilification. You know, if I was David getting the ark, I'd be like, come on, lads, let's get the ark. Let's park it up and have a really nice cup of tea because I'm absolutely knackered. Now, that's how I would think. Like, David, you, you read the story of Samuel and you're like going man David he has had a tough ride like he must have been exhausted does he really feel like worshipping right now but here we are David is a man who's living in unstable and unsettled time reaching the pinnacle of his leadership in 992 BC and then bringing the ark into Jerusalem and yet here, where most people would have been collapsing, David's choosing to live a life of worship. And you know, what I find remarkable is if you just go into that 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city, um, sorry, just slightly early in 12, David was told to go to Obed-Edom, bring up the ark, and here we see uh, you know, that immediate decision. He takes six steps and sacrifices a bull and a fattened calf. And then David, wearing a linen ephod, which is basically his boxer shorts, danced before the Lord with all his might. This wasn't like a token. This wasn't like the king going, yes, welcome everyone, wonderful news, I have arrived with the ark. This wasn't dignified. It wasn't like a pompous ceremony. He strips off nearly all his clothes and starts jumping around like he's dancing to the prodigy in 1999. Now, he's literally flipping out in front of the whole population and everyone's looking at him and he is rejoicing hardcore. 
And what happens is that then the people follow suit. Now, I want to just pull out a couple of points for you around this decision-making. What I want to try and instill in you or, or, or enthuse in you or call you towards is this idea that in 2023, in the Anglican Church, we can no longer be passengers to worship. And when I say passengers to worship, I don't just mean worship as in sung worship. I mean passengers to worship and prayer, because worship and prayer go hand in hand. You know, we worship and we pray and we pray and we worship. Like, we have to stop waiting to feel better before we engage in those things that actually give us spiritual life, which is prayer and worship. Like, if we wait to feel better before we take the medicine that we need to feel better, we are never going to feel better. And when I say feel better, it's not just feeling better for our sake, it's feeling better for the sake of the whole church. Like, I could, like, we could wander into, like, the Anglican press, like, and we could all predict like a perma crisis in the world of the church over the next 12 months. But this is Christ's church, and he has won a great victory, and we're called to participate in it by decision. So, like, are we going to decide to let our actions lead our feelings, or are we going to wait and let our feelings determine our actions? I just want to kind of say, come on. Like, 2023 is going to be a perma crisis, but are we going to let the perma crisis dictate whether we're worshippers or not? Or we're going to just start worshipping anyway and let our feelings follow our actions. The first reality of worship is that it takes sacrifice. In verse 13, you see that, that, that David had taken just six steps before he sacrifices a bull and a calf. That's really expensive. You know, before he'd even begun his journey proper, he's there splashing serious cash. You know, he doesn't say, oh, lads, let's wait till we've actually got to Jerusalem before we, you know, do anything showy because, you know, we want most people to see us sacrificing. We, we, we don't want to sacrifice now on the road because that would be a waste. That's what many of us would be thinking. I'd be thinking, come on, lads, let's hold on. Let's just do it. When we're at the highest point in the city and everyone can see, I'm sacrificing a great calf, everyone. Praise God. No. David really cares about worship first, so when he's just taken six steps out on the road out of Obed-Edom, he quickly kills a really expensive cow at the side of the road because he's saying, my journey matters to the Lord. I'm going to dedicate my journey in worship as much as my arrival point. Are we going to start the year sacrificing the proverbial cow and saying, right now, Lord, I'm going to set my heart towards you in worship. I'm not going to wait till something good has happened. Again, Primary Will Van Der Lord, I'll really praise you when I've got exactly what I want. Now we've got to go, Lord, I'm going to really praise you. And if I get what I want, that's a bonus. But I'm just going to really praise you. Start with worship. Don't end with worship. It's a real sacrifice. Second element of worship is humility. It makes sense that you can only really worship when you're bowing down. What's amazing about David here in verse 14 is that the most powerful and significant king in the history of the people of Israel... He's just wearing a simple linen slip and kind of dancing around the street. And his wife is looking at him going, look, you know, we're seeing far too much there, mate. And the uh, local slave girls are loving it, and I'm not liking it at all. But that is the reality of his situation. So he is taking off everything that sets him up in order that he can get down. And, and we, in worship, need to stop saying, Lord, my agenda is my agenda, you know, I just I need to do it in my time, in my way, then all will be well. 
David's saying, I'm going to take off all this stuff that makes me look like a king and gets in the way in order that I can get humble before you and acknowledge that you're God and I am me. Nothing that would be happening in my life would be happening if it wasn't for you. Now, again, in our Christian worship, we, we can walk away. We can think, oh, I'm really not into worshipping. I mean, have you ever sat down in worship? Just a sort of mini protest. Like, I've, I've done that. You know, yes, Lord. Yes, I'm here, but I'm just not participating tonight. I hope you see me, Lord. I'm sitting down. I'm showing you how discontent I am because this happened to me. And frankly, I've had enough. And so unless you do something about it, I'm not standing. No, I'm not standing up. I'm not going to stand. Look, people are looking at me, Lord. They know I'm disgruntled with you. They know I'm upset. I'm disappointed in you, Lord. And therefore, I'm not standing up until something changes. You know, many of us have done that. Even if we haven't actually, actually sat down, we've thought about sitting down. But we're here to worship the God of the universe. You know, David could have said, Lord, I've had all sorts of a tough time. I'm not really feeling it. But he doesn't. He acts first and then lets his feelings follow. So, first point, the reality of worship is that it takes sacrifice. And secondly, it calls us to humility. What I love about David is is there's no reluctance. And he doesn't need to be cajoled into the room. He is the most enthusiastic worshipper that he knows. And uh, this is a great lesson in worship, that actually we're not just called to be sacrificial and humble, but we're also called to be enthusiastic. And Brits aren't brilliant at that. I love being in part of a, a quite a diverse church. We've got Americans here and Africans, and we've got quite a lot of South Africans, and we've got quite a few uh, Antipodeans. And, and that's great, because there's great, there's great liberation in the room. And you can teach us how to do it as Brits. Yes, I'm worshipping, Lord, can you see me? I'm only bending my arm from the elbow, but this is as good as it gets, Father, because I'm British and we only shake hands like this. Um, you know, we can be held in. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that you have to be so super exuberant. What I'm saying is we need to be exuberant in our hearts and be the most enthusiastic people that we know. Because actually, enthusiasm with worship begets enthusiasm. David dances with all his might before the Lord, and hey-ho, the whole house of Israel join in. And when you express your life as worship exuberantly before the Lord, it doesn't just have a vertical effect, it doesn't just honour God, it honours God's people and it transforms their heart towards worship. There is something like, there is a, a healthy crowd effect in worship. Like, that's why we sometimes go to big conferences because like night one, everyone's standing there like a kind of pencil top and then by like night five, you know, everyone's granny is kind of jumping around like with a top sweat on kind of going, yeah, Jesus, and then we can all join in and it's all great. Because we kind of worked our way through all this awkwardness that we had into a place of intimacy and enthusiasm. And we have to get beyond ourselves and say, I'm super enthusiastic. Now, in a permacrisis, people are saying, well, what are you worshipping about, Joe Coleman? Why are you looking so excited? Like, it doesn't fit. You're a bit weird. Because it's like it disconnects. You know, surely we should all be somber and sad in a time of difficulty. And that's yeah, we're subject to that sort of social more. Like, we need to all just look really sad and Anglican. Be like, yes, it's a hard time. And I've written a new liturgy so we can all kind of mourn together through the permacrisis. No, that isn't what the Lord is calling us to. He's saying, celebrate me, you know, join in jubilation and triumph with me, even though things might be difficult for you. So, 
It's really cool, it's really, it's really central that we actually engage in worship with our greatest enthusiasm. And what I love about David is, is that he, he really doesn't care who's watching and what other people think. Now, I find this really difficult. So I, I'm very sort of socially conscious, so I actually find it quite awkward. I'm all right when I'm sort of teaching or something like that. It's fine. But, but you know, I, I'm, I've, got to dad, I've got to the dad stage now where like, I do a dad dance um, I went into, my, my, my daughter had about 10 teenagers out around yesterday. They're all so cool. And I went in the room, they say, Father Will. They think it's really funny, call me Father Will. Because it's like Father Ted, I've realized. <laughs> like they're aligning me to sort of like so that kind of vibe. It'll be Vicar of Dibley soon. But at the moment, it's, it's Father Will, lots of chortling. And then I kind of come in awkwardly and go, oh, hi, guys. That's what my dad would say. Hi, guys, how's it going? Yeah, we're okay, Father Will. You listening to any music? Yeah, nothing you'd like. Go away now, please, Father Will. You know, it, it's a sort of awkwardness. Like, oh, it's a bit awkward. And in worship, we can all be a bit like that. Oh, it's a bit awkward. Oh, someone's watching me. So, who, what, what's the person behind me think? You know, I'm, I need to kind of, I'm sort of frozen. David, everyone's looking at him. And, and, Michael, his wife, this is pretty scathing, like it's not great marriage advice. She looked out the window and it says she despised him in verse 16. Now she despised him and then she rebukes him in verse 20, calling him vulgar because actually he had lowered himself in position and had really let go of his pride for the sake of worship. Like she's, she's despising him because she's saying, well, you've dishonored yourself and you've embarrassed me. But what David doesn't go is, oh, I'm really sorry, darling. Oh, that was so, you know, puerile of me, and I must do better next time, and I'll be more dignified, and like, you know, I'll, I'll act my age. She doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say that at all. What, what he says is, he says, I will celebrate before the Lord, that's a primary call of action, and I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I love that. It's like epic moment of Davidness. Not only does he say, I'm going to become even more undignified than I have been already, but I'm going to be so undignified, I'm going to be humiliated in my own eyes. Like, which is, you know, you've got to go quite far. You know, we've all, like, you, you know, when you really just think, I'm an absolute idiot right now. Um, when you really are humiliated in your own eyes. But, but actually, the decision is so good. He says, like, I, I will celebrate the Lord. And let's face it, let's be really honest. Christianity is becoming a weird sidetrack in our nation at this time, in public perception. We are a weird group of people who prescribe to a very strange set of beliefs that people don't really understand. And we gather together in buildings like this to sing songs. No one quite gets it. That's the kind of reality. Now, 50 years ago, people thought this was all completely normal and that we should all do this. But right now, that's not the case. Now, are we going to go, oh, I feel a bit funny being, you know, the odd one out, therefore we can, we've got to make it look a bit more normal? Or do we just go, sack it, let's just be even more undignified than this. Let's be humiliated in our own eyes and let's just celebrate the Lord. You know, society is not going to change its mind if we look more like society. They're not going to go, oh yeah, I really get what you're doing there. It looks really, it's kind of like, like us, really, but it's just a bit weirder. What we want them to say is, what is it you're doing? It's completely crazy weird. Like, what, what on earth is it all about? 
We, we don't want to be just a tiny bit different. We want to be radically different. Like David is saying, I'm going to celebrate the Lord despite all of these challenges. Like, and I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to be dancing like this guy. I'm like, I'm doing the running man right here in the center of Jerusalem in my boxer shorts in front of you, you guys, and I'm the king. That's a remarkable thing. But it has a, it has a, 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 a collective effect. In verse 18, David goes to bless the people. In verse 19, they receive a cake of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. And, and, and what that is is a sign of how much of a blessing God is to the people in worship. He's saying, look, here's a token of my gratitude because worship's not all about dancing and singing and waving our hands in the air. Worship's also about how we act in generosity and compassion to the people who have the least in our society. So we, we live worship. We don't just sing worship. We act our worship out in the way that we serve our neighbors. Like David expresses worship to God in action, worship in sacrifice, and then worship in generosity. Like, what are you doing? Why are you loving your neighbors like this? Why are these older people coming in and doing exercise in your church? Like, what's going on with all these people with addictions? Why are they hanging around here? Like, what's going on with these people who are in debt? We're worshiping because we're deciding to live this out as worship. So worship isn't just what we sing and how we dance and move and celebrate. It's how we actually live. And again... So much today is going to be like, oh, you know what? I'm like, money is too tight to mention. So I can't really worship by being generous at the moment until I've got a bit more in the bank. I've got to like hold on to the kind of worship bit until I'm a bit more flush. When the good times come, then I'll be super worshipful. If we let our feelings dictate our worship, a whole lot of people in society are going to be a whole lot worse off because they're not receiving the care, the love, the generosity, the gifts, the food that they need because everyone else is going, well, when I feel a bit more like giving, then I'll give a bit more. You know, we can't let our feelings dictate our worship. We have to let worship dictate our feelings. The key thing is that decision to worship God is not a selfish decision. It's actually a generous decision. When we choose to worship, we're choosing to bless and when we choose to worship, we actively bless God and then we actively bless one another. Oswald Chambers, who I love still and I've read his book about 19 times, worship is giving God the best that he has given you. Be careful what you do with the best you have. Whenever you get a blessing from God, give it back to him as a love gift. Take time to meditate before God and offer the blessing back to him in a deliberate act of worship. I love that. It's like punching me in the face. It's a deliberate act of worship. There's nothing accidental about it. There's nothing reactive about it. There's nothing that says, when I feel like it, I'm going to do it. It just says, offer what you have back to God as a deliberate act of worship. You know, and I, I guess we, 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 need to, we need to worship again now because we've got a space to do that. But, you know, I don't know. You know, I'm on a... I just feel passionately this year that we can't go, we can't do it, let's not do it, let's not do last year again. You know, whatever we do, please, let's not do last year again. Like, there was some good, we did, there was some good stuff here, but let's not, let's not all be, oh, I'm, let's, let's help one another. There are going to be moments when we really need each other's help, like when it's just like tough times roll. 
absolutely for that. Let's minister to one another in grace. But let's not let the kind of media perma crisis just set the tone for worship in this building. You know, when we need to cry together, let's cry together. But let's not let the world say, we've all got to be like, oh, and we feel like worship this year. Let's just come in here and go, right, let's go. A deliberate act of worship. I'm dancing. Don't strip down to your boxer shorts, but do, do what is necessary to really press in in worship to God and like, let's see what happens. That's all I'm saying. If we do that bit, you know, look, we can't do any worse than we, well, we can't, things can't get any worse, let's say. I mean, not specifically here, don't get me wrong, for the recording. Um, let's, things can't get any worse in the church if we just carry on doing what we're doing. We've got to wake up again and engage in deliberate acts of worship and prayer in order that we see God's kingdom come in this place and God's spirit move in new power. So I'm just going to say, right, I'm committed. I'm going to dance weirdly and um, you can all laugh and I don't really care. Well, I'll probably care, but I'm just going to put it out there. Join me, join Tim, join Laura, join the team, say let's do this together and um, we'll see what it looks like and praise God together and I think amazing things are going to happen. Why don't you stand? Matt's going to come and lead us in some worship. We've got some time to pray and um, as, as the band come, let's just let's commit now in prayer, shall we, together that God is going to do something powerful amongst us.